Once more, and for the last noon meeting, I want to say personally, welcome to you. We're very happy you have joined us. We've had a wonderful journey together. God has led, God has blessed, and I am saddened, actually, in one sense. I'm excited to go back home. Yes, my wife said to me just the other day, Whew, it's been too long, honey. <laughs> it was, I think yesterday I was on the phone with her. Yeah, it's tough. But, you know, I have been blessed by being here. And I've gotten to know so many wonderful people here. So I go home reluctantly but excitedly. I'm glad to have the, had this privilege to meet you. And uh, even be, if I don't have a chance to say it again, I say it right at the beginning, folks. I really do wish, especially with our topic today, I long for the day when there will be no more partings, when we will eventually always be forever with the Lord, with each other. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, thank you for being good to us. Thank you for the many friends I've met here, people who love you, people who are growing, people who are walking by faith and not by sight. Focused on Jesus Christ. Keep us close to you. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Just to remind you, our last message we had, this one, uh, and I just said, the dead rest in the grave till they are raised. But today I'm going to try. I thought I was trying the impossible before. Now I'm trying the totally impossible. But I just want to whet your appetites because there's so much here. Uh, here is something Barbara Walters. Heard of Barbara Walters? Yes. December 2005 article. In Search of Heaven. Interesting. And she went and talked to different people on this whole issue. Fascinating article, how different people view heaven from radically different perspectives. It's become very, very popular now, this whole idea. Let me read to you very briefly, very quickly here, something that I came across. And I eventually, I shared this in a message, and I've eventually put it into the book, No Fear for the Future. So I'm going to actually read from this right here. At the start of book one, on a 747 jet bound to Fort Heathrow from Chicago, the flight attendant suddenly finds about half the seats empty, except for the clothes and wedding rings and dental fillings of the believers who have suddenly been swept up to heaven. Down on the ground, cars are crashing. Husbands are waking up to find only a nightgown in bed next to them, and all children under 12 have disappeared as well. By the way, I'm reading from Time magazine. This is Time magazine, July 1, 2002. Here's the issue. I just put it together, it's easier than flipping through the pages. Let me read further from Time Magazine. The books, this is Time Magazine speaking now. An article there, July 1, 2002. The books of the Left Behind series offer readers a vivid, violent, and utterly detailed description of just what happens to those who are left behind on earth after to fight the Antichrist after Jesus raptures or lifts the faithful up to heaven. The terrorist attacks, which was just a few months before that, not only deepened the interest... Among Christians fluent in the language of Armageddon and Apocalypse, it broadened it as well to an audience that had never paid much attention to the predictions of the doomsday prophet Nostradamus or been worried about an epic battle that marks the end of time or for that matter read the book of Revelation. Since September 11, again still from Time magazine, people from the cooler corners of Christianity have begun asking questions about the, what the Bible has to say about how the world ends. 
The book of Revelation has always held its mysteries. But for millions of people, the code was broken in 1995 when Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins published Left Behind, a novel of the Earth's last days. Now, I, I'm going to show you in a picture in a minute, but I want to uh, just rush ahead. That was 2002. And there were 14, uh, there's a 14 part series that some of you might know. Time magazine says, this interest in the end times is no fringe phenomenon. Only about half of the left behind readers, those books, are evangelical, which suggests there is a broader audience of people who are having this conversation. Actually, Time, CNN, did a poll in which they found out that more than one third of Americans, more than 33% of Americans say they are paying more attention now to how the news might relate to the end of the world. Fully 59% say the events in Revelation are going to come true. Almost 60% believe that. Some, some of that interest is fueled by faith, some by fear, some by imagination. But all three, faith, fear, and imagination, are fed by the Left Behind series of books. Okay, And in case you did, weren't aware, let me just show you a cover now. This is... a. Um, Newsweek, that was Time Magazine I quoted. This is Newsweek, the new prophets of Revelation. That's what it's, what it's called, why their biblical left-behind novels have sold 62 million copies and counting. Okay, this was Newsweek Magazine. The date there, let's see, um, was May 24, 2004. And it's, a, it's having an alarming impact around the world. Listen to this, the 12th book that came out, Glorious Appearing, sold almost 2 million copies before it was published. Okay, It wasn't even published, they sold 2 million copies. We're happy if a book sells a few thousand after it's come out. Okay, Amazing. And you know what they say? Newsweek says, Jerry Jenkins and Tim Lay are, quote, America's best-selling authors across the board. Fiction, secular they are the best-selling authors. Make no mistake, their books, movies, CDs, greeting cards, games, children's books are having an alarming impact on people. Newsweek has taken a poll, and this is what they say. 55%, this is 2004, by the way, 55% of Americans in general, across the board, Christian, agnostic, atheist, secular, Muslim, across the board, 55% of Americans believe think that the faithful will be taken up to heaven in the rapture. So it's a huge group of people. Why do I say it's alarming? Because sometimes, listen to what happens. One dear 77-year-old lady said, if we keep our eyes on Israel, literal Israel, there in the Middle East, we will know about the return of Christ. In fact, one evangelical from Australia was so anxious to get Jesus to come, he went to the Muslim Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the sacred shrines of the Muslims, places, and he set it on fire in an attempt to burn down the mosque so that then when the mosque would be gone, the evangelicals and others could rebuild the third temple because they believe that you must rebuild the, the temple right there before Jesus can come. Now listen to one more quote from the Time magazine I mentioned. To some evangelical readers, the left-behind books provide more than a spiritual guide. They are a political agenda. When they read in the newspapers that uh, about the growing threats to Israel, they are not only concerned for a fellow Democrat 
Arctic ally in the war against terror. They are also worried about God's chosen people and the fate of the land. Where events must must unfold, they believe, in a specific way for Jesus to return. That combination helps to explain why some Christian leaders have also pressed their case in the Bush White House as if their salvation depended upon it. Interesting. Something I just got a year ago. Jerry Falwell says, the Left Behind series, listen to this, in terms of its impact on Christianity... The Left Behind series is probably greater than that of any other book in modern times outside of the Bible. A major impact these books have had unquestioningly. So we, we cannot ignore the, the teachings and what's been coming here. In a nutshell, what is being taught? I'll give you three quick things. I'm summarizing simplistically, yes, but three things the rapture theory teaches. I just wanted to mention this. First, Secret rapture can occur at any moment. There are no signs predicting it. And no one, only those who have been raptured will know that they've been raptured. Nobody else will know, except their clothes might be left behind in something else. But no one knows they're raptured except those who went up. You'll find their personal effects. Number one. Number two, after the rapture, there will be a dreadful time of persecution that they call the tribulation. But don't worry, because God... All God's true believers will not suffer. They'll be in heaven already, safe and sound. Third, if you missed the rapture, and remember, 55% of Americans in general believe this, but if you miss the rapture, don't worry. You have a second chance. A second chance at salvation. And I brought with today, I, this is, of course, you know, those books are called fictionalized uh, things, but in 1999, and I bought this book, by the way, I didn't bring it, it's too heavy to carry all these books with me, I, both my suitcases had 50 pounds. They were loaded to the max. So I just got some, brought some photocopies. I bought a book called Are We Living in the End Times by LaHaye and Jenkins. And I've been looking at the book. And they got some interesting material in it. Well, I think there's material that Christians in general agree with. But then they go further and they say, uncounted millions of men and women, boys and girls, will recognize that although they missed the rapture, and thus will have to endure the terrors of the tribulation, yet God is still wooing them to His side. We believe these tribulation saints could well number into the billions with a B. They've been left behind, yes, but God will not give up on them. And then they go further on page 240, and they say, there's a third chance at salvation. If you, are, if you are not saved by the time Jesus comes on page 240 on this book, and it's a book on prophecy, it's not a fictionalized one. They say this is actually a book on the theology. So I'm giving you a quick idea here. And then they say, if you are not saved by the time Jesus comes, don't worry. You'll have another 100 years to repent during the millennium. On page 240, they say, we believe the unregenerate, will be given 100 years to repent and accept Christ as their Savior during the first 100 years of the millennium. So, now you understand why I'm really concerned as a Christian pastor. The rapture theory teaches, gives you the opportunity to put off salvation. You have a second chance, you have a third chance, you can even be saved uh, for a, during the 100 years in the millennium, by the way. Interesting theories. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that because, you know, I wanted to give you a visual example of that today. I looked at materials that were put together on Bible study, and guess what? Today's sermon, they put into five separate Bible studies. So you know what I'm trying to say today? I'm going to try to give 
to whet your appetite only. Because there are so much beautiful uh, truths in Scripture. But let me sound a caution right here. You might be thinking I've been critical of my fellow Christians. I stand guilty as accused. I too, in my enthusiasm, have misquoted Scripture and have talked about things and now I'm finding more. I'm saying, okay, I'll give you an example. Daniel chapter 12, let me share with you. So, remember, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying sometimes we ourselves have used Scriptures in such a way, later on we dig further, we say, how come did I do that? So, I'm hoping that all of us can be open to growing. Isn't that true? Faithful to the Word. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12. This is the one that's been used. I remember preaching evangelistically and uh, bringing lots of evidence, scientific evidence and all kinds of uh, latest inventions. And that was almost 30 years ago. There were no iPods. There were no, I mean, there was, there was no internet. There, was no, there were no cell phones really. And here I was talking about technological advancement based upon a misreading of Daniel 12 verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And myself, in my enthusiasm, simply said, took that second part of the verse out of context, as we sometimes do. We take a verse here, we take a verse there, and we apply it willy-nilly to modern things happening around in the newspapers and, and so forth. And then I said, ah, look, many will run to and fro, will be traveling. And I talked about uh, space travel and jets and, and high speed and all that. And I talked about knowledge increasing. I brought a lot of the modern ev- evidence of the increase of knowledge. Guess what, folks? That text is not talking about it. Surprise. Context. Always go back to the context. The context is knowledge about the book of Daniel. If you study the context of the whole book, you study that, that's the primary message. Now, you can make a secondary application. We do that many times. But the primary application is the book of Daniel will be understood. And if you study historically, look at what happened in the Christian church. I'm talking about many, many denominations. There are are volumes that show this. Many denominations, Methodist, Baptist, uh, Christian Connection, Jew, I mean, all kinds Roman Catholics, many of them began to dig into the book of Daniel. When? Right towards the end of the 18th century. Fascinating. There was an explosion. It became known here in the United States as the great Second Advent Awakening. It's a phenomenon in history. And it spread throughout the world. Dozens of countries, all continents. People were all over studying into these prophecies. Fascinating. It's talking about knowledge increases about the book of Daniel. Running to and fro, what does that mean? Aha, let's think ancient times. What did people have in ancient times? Did they have books going through pages? What did they have? Scrolls. How do you read a scroll? You have to open it up, roll it out. Have you ever seen these scrolls? I, have, I bought one when I was in Jerusalem, one of the cheap ones on paper, not on parchment. And you scroll it out. If you want to go from, let's check Jan, Daniel 1, let's go to Daniel 12. What do you have to do? You literally have to go from here. Now, wait a minute. Oh, okay. Ah, that's right. Daniel 2 predicts this. Over here, Daniel 7 seems to talk about the same uh, empire. Daniel 8 repeats that. Now wait a minute. This is the end of time and so you, you run back and forth as you're excited. It's the whole thing going back checking. It's in the context of the book of Daniel. Primary application. Very important. 
If you want to have a secondary application, an additional one, you have to say so. This, the primary application comes out of the book. Why do I say that's important? Because I just mentioned our friends, um, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. Where do they get the idea that you have a hundred years to repent? Ah, they went to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64, 65, 66. And sometimes we do that ourselves. We look at that and we say, Oh, this is about the new earth. Isaiah, I'll go there quickly, just briefly. Uh, just as caution. Remember, I'm only whetting your appetites, folks. Go back to, I'm not going to preach the whole sermon. I'm going to just give you an introduction to the wonders of digging carefully into the scripture. This evening, we'll unpack a lot more. We'll have one and a half times, if not twice as much time. So we'll give you a lot more there, all right? Isaiah 64, 65, 65 and 66. And it's here where you read in chapter 65. Go to 65 verse 20. This is where they get the idea from. No more shall an infant from, the, from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has fulfilled these days. For the child shall die, how old? 100 years old. But the sinner shall, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. And they say, you see, there'll be sinners. Ah, hold on folks. Isaiah is not talking about the new earth. If you read the context, Isaiah, originally the prophecy, primary application, the prophecy was for Israel. You read it in context. If Israel was repentant and they came back to God, God was going to make a new, miraculously new place for them. Canaan was going to be renewed. The primary application of chapter 65 and 66 is for Israel. The secondary application, you can take principles from here. So be careful. Don't take things out of context. Be very, very careful. So I wanted to give you that caution. I've done the same thing. Others have done the same thing. We tend to pick here and there cafeteria style. You know what I'm talking about? Text out of context. And when you do that, you come up with things. The great man, well-respected Oxford um, apologist, one who fought nicely, powerfully for the Christian faith. His name was C.S. what? C.S. Lewis. Now let's go to Matthew 24 because C.S. Lewis said Matthew 24 is the most embarrassing text in the Bible. Huh? C.S. Lewis? Yes. I'll read to you. Again, the problem is if you take a verse out of Scripture and it's misapplied. So I'm going to give you very quickly here, uh, the, the inf, inf, and I'm going to keep the last 15 minutes here just to give you some encouragement. But be careful of taking text out of Scripture. Matthew 24, verse 34. Matthew 24, verse 34. And Lewis said, this is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. And this verse is used by Jews, by Muslims, by agnostics to attack Christianity, Christ, and the New Testament. Here is the verse that C.S. Lewis said was the most embarrassing one. Assuredly, I say to you, says Jesus, this generation shall, will by no means pass till all things take place. And they say, ah, the generation's gone long ago, man. Ah, and, and you know what? From these very verses, 33, 34, 35, those verses... From verse 32, that's where the late great planet Earth and all of this theology came from. All of that was saying, taking it out of its context. So let's go back to verse 2. We want to do a contextual study quickly of Matthew 24. Fascinating study, folks. In fact, I've been, I spent hours and hours on this and loved the study. A friend of mine who's done some deep work, and I've checked this myself. Matthew 24, go to verse 2. Uh, they were coming out of the temple and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And the disciples looked 
You serious? The temple is going to be thrown down? But the temple is where God's presence is? And if the temple is thrown on, this to them is going to be the end of the world. How do I know that? Go to the next verse. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They put the two together. These things, the temple collapses, it's the end of the age. But it's interesting, they actually asked two questions. They said, when will these things be and what will be the sign of the end? And now when Jesus responds, notice carefully, he doesn't want to uh, uh, make them discouraged apparently, but he responds talking about two events with different language constantly. He talks about these, every time he talks about these, it has to do with the fall of Jerusalem. And if you know how the, the Greeks do things, they go A, B, A, B, even in poetry. We have that in our poets, poetry, right? You go, this, you do that. It's called an AB, uh, AB rhyme. And so Jesus talks about these things. And from verse 4 onwards, from verse 4, you can mark it in your Bibles. I want you to check it out later on. But from verse 4 all the way to verse 20, that whole section, he is talking in the primary application specifically about the fall of Jerusalem. He repeatedly says these things, these things, these things. Unfortunately, we've taken passages out of those, that section and we've applied it willy-nilly, dangerously. It doesn't work. It's these and this. That's how it's used in there. And it also talks about the end. Interesting. It never talks about the end of the age. In that section, from verse 4 to verse 20, it talks about the telos, the end. It's the end of Jerusalem. Later on, in the book of Matthew, the word, the end, refers to the, the end of Jerusalem. It never talks about the end of the world. It's a completely different word. And it's used, the end of the age, the end of the world. Matthew's consistent. He doesn't confuse us. When he's talking about the end of Jerusalem, he uses the word telos, the end. When he's talking about the fall of the, the end of the world, he says, suntaleia, suntaleia, the end of the age. And the Bibles bring it out. If it simply says the end, it's not the end of the world. But if Matthew says the end of the world, the end of the age, then he's talking about that. So when you look at it, it's very clear. Jesus said this, these, this, these. Then, from verse 21 onwards to verse 31, Jesus says that, those, that, those. <laughs> very interesting. And he's talking about the end of the world. Very fascinating. And I, you can see that right there. Look at verse 21. For there shall come a great tribulation, such as never since the beginning of the world until this time, and unless those days were shortened. Those. He's talking about the end of the world. Okay? And he says false Christ and pro false prophets will come at that time, at the end of the world. Several verses you can see there. Fascinating. Verse 29, the same idea comes up. The end of the world. This is the second coming. The coming of Jesus. Now, verse 32. Now you block it. Now you go back to A. Verse 32 through 35, the language changes back to these things. He's going back to the section talking about the fall of Jerusalem. So, you also, verse 32, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. The fall of Jerusalem. And he talks about these things in verse 34. This generation shall not pass. Now, wait a minute. How long is a generation, biblically speaking? Forty years. When was Jesus making this prediction on the Mount of Olives just before he was crucified? Approximately when did he die? 31. 40 plus 31 takes you to when? 71. When did Jerusalem fall? 70. He was right. This generation did not pass 
until those th- these things were fulfilled. Fascinating. His language is there. You can see it in the Bible. Most Bibles actually translate it quite clearly. It's interesting. So I'm just sounding a caution. I myself have misinterpreted, taken text out of context. Don't do that. Read the Bible carefully. Now let's go to the last section. Now Jesus goes again. He says, now I'm going to tell about the end of the world. And so he talks from verse 36 to 44 again about that day. Verse 36. Of that hour, no one knows. Verse 37, 39, he talks about my coming. It's interesting. The primary application is the fall of Jerusalem, Those first verses, the end of the world. Next set. The fall of Jerusalem, the end of the world. And you know what's interesting? Jesus knew that the disciples were confused. Jesus knew they they thought he was coming back soon. How do I know that? I just found that this morning. Go to Luke 19. We'll come back to chapter 24 here. Luke chapter 19. And I said, wow, that is surprising. I read my Bible before. I'd read this chapter more than a dozen times and I'd never seen it. Luke chapter 19. Fascinating. The more you read, the more you understand. He said, ah, Jesus knew. The disciples thought he was going to come right away. They put the two events together. When, when will the temple collapse? And when will you come? Listen to verse, chapter 19, verse 11. And by the way, in verse 28, there's a thing that's called the triumphal entry. Jesus was about to get on that donkey in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and ride into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. Remember that? Okay, your king is coming. And look at verse 11, just a few verses before that it says, Now as they heard these things, verse 10, The Son of Man has come to seek and save which was lost. They heard that. As they heard these things, verse 11, He, Jesus, spoke another parable because He was near Jerusalem, about to go in the triumphant entry, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And so what does Jesus do? He tells them a parable. Therefore, he says, a certain nobleman went into a far country. Who do you think the nobleman is? Jesus Christ himself. And he gives talents and he tells the whole story about, I am going into a far country. The kingdom of heaven is not going to happen right away. And not only does he say, I'm going to a far country. Let's go back to Matthew now. So there it is. Jesus knew. They thought. That word they immediately is an interesting word. It's a word that Luke uses many times. Parachrema, uh, I believe it is. Right away, immediately. Let's go back to Matthew now, chapter 25. We're going to skip to 25 because that's where that same parable is given. Matthew 25. Jesus is telling that parable there in Matthew 25. And I just want you to know the two things here. Then we'll go back to chapter 24. Verse 25, 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling into a far country. We told you that already. Go to verse 19. What does Jesus say? After a long time, the Lord of the servants came back. A long time. Jesus told the disciples, the second coming is going to be down the road. They probably didn't grasp it. The Greek is clear. After many, much, polus, okay, chronos, much extended time. Fascinating. The kingdom of God is not going to come immediately. He made it. He said it. It's right there in the Bible. Okay, he's not going to come immediately after a long time. Let's go back to Matthew now. And one more thing I must tell you. Yes, people will say, but isn't the fall of Jerusalem a type or a prototype of the end of the world? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. How do I know? Because Jesus repeats. Let's go to verse 9. Quickly, Matthew 24, verse 9. Now, question. Verse 9, is that what part? Is that in the fall of Jerusalem or the end of the world? Fall of Jerusalem, correct. And therein it says, there what will happen? There will be tribulation. 
Let's go now to the second part, verse 21, which goes through 31. What does Jesus say? There will be great tribulation. Ah, tribulation, fall of Jerusalem, tribulation, end of the world. Let's look at verse 5. Jesus says, false Christ will arise. In what section? In the context of the fall of Jerusalem. Verse 24, context of the end of the world, false Christs. False prophets in fall of Jerusalem, false prophets end of the world. Yes, you, the fall of Jerusalem is symbolic of the end of the world. But we must read our Bibles more carefully, not take things out of context, because some things only apply to the fall of Jerusalem. Read them carefully. Fascinating. Dig deeply. Today I just had so much time reading, studying. It was exciting. But let's talk a little bit more about what does Jesus say. Let's go to the words of Jesus now further in John 14. Well-known passage. I sound that caution very strongly because there are so many people going around with so many theories and I had to warn you. i show you one here quickly. This one, as you go to, the, to John chapter 14, I want to show you something here. Jesus will come. This was in... Listen to this. This was in USA Today, a quarter page ad. You know what that cost to put in a quarter page ad? A lot of money. This was in October 7, 1992. Jesus will come in the Feast of Tabernacle, October 28, 1992. This caught my attention because that's my wife, Linda, and I. That's our anniversary, October 28. And that was, a, we, we, we were married. In 1979, so it was on our 13th wedding anniversary that Jesus was coming, according to this ad. They set a date. They proclaimed it. You know, brothers, don't be in darkness, etc. A lot of Bible texts do not receive the mark 666 barcode on the forehead or right hand. Interesting. Be careful, folks. There are many, many sincere people. And I share with you a quick overview. Be careful as people pick and choose things out of the Bible. That's my caution. Okay, I've done the same. That's why I said I plead guilty. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm pointing fingers to myself. Be very careful. Read the Bible carefully. Dig deeply as for hidden treasure. John 14, 1 to 3, well-known passage. Jesus says what? Okay, let's just remind you of that. And then just remind you of some. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus has promised he will come back. He will come back. No question. And there are several signs that I want to mention. You can write them down quickly because of time. As I said, I'm packing in here five messages today. And I always, nowadays, I try to recommend a book a friend of mine, I just called him recently, an acquaintance. We were at Andrews uh, together. He's written a book called End Time Delusions. Steve Wahlberg has a book out, and uh, I'd recommend this quite highly. Remember, I never recommend a book 100%. It's only the Bible I recommend 100%, okay? I don't even recommend my own books 100%, because they too have mistakes in them, okay? The stuff that to be updated. So Steve Wahlberg has a lot of good material in here. I would highly recommend End Time Delusions. He's done a careful study. This book was published by, um, let's see, Destiny Publishers in, um, in Pennsylvania. And uh, there are some uh, Christian scholars who have given endorsements for this. Charles Roberts, Reformed Presbyterian minister and the Pentecostal evangelist, has uh, uh, D uh, Dominiguez has also endorsed it. Careful biblical study about this whole rapture and second coming theories. Be careful. Signs, yes. The first thing you must remember that Jesus' coming will be personal and literal. I'm giving you a quick few that you can write down here. I want you to just note where it comes from. 
Some of you know it by memory perhaps. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. The angel said, This same what? Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him going to heaven. Write down a few verses I'd like you to read at home when you get there. So that's Acts 1 verse 11. This same Jesus. It will be visible. It will be literal. Visible, every eye will see him. Revelation 1 verse 7. You can write that text down also. Revelation 1 verse 7. Every eye will see him. It will be audible. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. It says he will come with a trumpet sound. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Oh, it'll be like lightning flashing across the sky. We're in the book of Matthew. Maybe we should go there. Several of them are found in Matthew. And we'll just stay in Matthew 24 and take them in the proper context. Not dealing with the issue of the fall of Jerusalem. We're looking at the primary application. Matthew chapter 24. Look at me here. Verse 30 and uh, 31. Okay? It says, The Son of Man... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, visible, coming in the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. So it is uh, visible, right? It is with great glory, triumphant. And, verse 31, He will send His angels with a great sound of trumpet. It is audible. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds of uh, the earth. So there are several things that come there right away. You can see it. Plus, it is sudden. Go down to verse 43. But know this. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So there it is. It's going to be unexpected. Okay? It's going to be sudden. People won't expect it. Of course, there are more things. It will be cataclysmic. We know it will. Uh, it's a picture from Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, where the stone cut out with not human hands, hits the image on the feet, and the image is ground to dust. Lots of things the Bible makes very clear. And if you look at the book of Luke and the book of Matthew together, there is no difference between rapture and second coming. There is only one event, folks. One event. By the way, I went to your library here. Is it over here? Which way? It's over here? Yeah. I went to the library. Okay. And I went to check for a book that I hoped, I was sure you'd have it. It's a dissertation written by a Ghanaian scholar by the name of Brempong Ausu Antwi. He is now the new dean of the new theological graduate training center that's just been established in Africa. Brand new uh, graduate school, African Adventist graduate school that just got established and the first classes were taught in January. And Dr. Brempong Ausu Antwi wrote his dissertation called the chronology of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. 24, 25, 26. Four verses, 436 pages. A serious, in-depth analysis, because that's critical to understanding this whole rapture theory. Because Daniel 9, 24 to 27, talks about what's called the 70-week prophecy. And it's one whole package. What has happened? The reason the rapture theory has come along? The, the last week, the 70th week, has been taken away from the 70 weeks and been thrown 2,000 years away from the prophecy. Fascinating study. Unfortunately, your library doesn't have it. Not even in the Heritage Center. It's not there. I looked. The only place I could find one around here or anywhere, I went to the Library of Congress. I found it online. Yes, it's at the Library of Congress. We have them at Andrews. I almost brought my copy with. I wished I had now. So I could share with you in-depth, clear analysis, 400 pages, four verses, yes. Showing irrefutably it's a 70-week prophecy, 
490 years in prophecy that ends at the time of the stoning of Stephen. Clear. So many evidences of that. And many, many Bible scholars have agreed. This is clear. Amazing. So be careful in your Bible study. And uh, look and dig very deeply. Don't be misled. Jesus warned all of us. He warned His disciples. He's warning us. Don't be misled. False prophets, false Christs will arise. They will deceive many if it were possible. Now there have been signs, folks. Write these down. There have been signs in the natural world. Okay, if you want to write something down here quickly as we wrap up. There are signs in the natural world. Lots of signs already. Uh, Luke 21, 25 is a good example of that. Write that down. Luke 21, 25. In the context of the second coming, it says towards the getting close to the second coming, after the tribulation, there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. And as, as you look at the end of the time of the dark or the middle ages, the tribulation, there were signs that came about. Magnificent signs in the heavens that many scholars recognize the darkening, dark day in history. The falling of the stars, that huge meteoric shower, the Leonid shower, the, the biggest one ever. The, the moon was red like sackcloth. And then, of course, the great earthquake, Lisbon earthquake, came also at the right time. Revelation chapter 7, 6 verse 12 talks about the great earthquake. Correct chronologically. Amazing things happen in the natural world. Number two, signs in the moral world. Matthew 24, that's where we are. From 37 through 39 says, But as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. All flesh was corrupted before the Lord. The sons of God married the daughters, the sons of God married the daughters of men. There was all kinds of problems happening. If you study deeply, different scholars have come up with things that say there were serious problems. If you read the scriptures carefully, it was so serious. The Bible says, the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. The days of Noah. For the, now verse 38, they were eating and drinking, give, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered. And they knew not until the flood came and took them away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That was the moral world. Signs in the religious world. Matthew 24, 24. We read it to you before, once before. False Christs, false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to, see, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Caution, folks, be careful of the miracles that, they, that you hear about. Now, I'm not saying all miracles are fake, but I do know that NBC has gone along with hidden cameras and they've shown that the supposed lengthening of a leg was simply the pulling down of a shoe of somebody. They've done this. They've revealed the, the chickenery, the, the deception of some of those who've been claiming to perform miracles. They've checked every one of one so-called miracle worker. They've checked every case and they found nobody was healed. Everyone who was supposedly healed died of the same disease that they claimed to have been healed of. Sad story. The man is bringing in millions of dollars, spending $10,000 a night for a hotel in, in, in Europe. Using people's money. Be careful. There are false Christs. I'm not mentioning names, but be careful. They've checked this. There's a lot of deception going on. Be extremely careful. I don't want to discount that God can work, and He still does. If God can save a city through a reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah, okay, Jonah didn't want to go to preach to them. God took him there. He was a reluctant prophet. God saved an entire city. If God can do that through a reluctant prophet, I don't doubt that God can work even through some of these who are clearly false prophets. Because there are people looking for God, focusing on Him. God works in spite of us at times. And I thank God for His grace. 
Okay? But I'm just sounding a caution. Be very careful because there are going to be false prophets, false Christ who will arise and deceive many. Be careful. Let's end off right here. There's a statement I want you to remember because in the context of what I call the ultimate thanksgiving, Christ will come back. So let's live right on track. You want to say that with me? Christ will come back. So let's live right on track. When I think of Thanksgiving, I'm not an American. Remember this? I came to the United States. I didn't understand it. But you know, I've fallen in love with Thanksgiving. Today's message I call the ultimate Thanksgiving. And I thought of Thanksgiving. And what does it mean to me? Thanksgiving, four or five things. Easily to remember. What do you think of when you think of Thanksgiving? Let's hear Family, yes, right. I'm glad somebody said family first instead of food. All right, let's go with the Fs. Family, of course. Family, family. Uh, Thanksgiving is the biggest celebration of family. I don't have, I, you know, I could share with you Bible text, but yes, guess what? God is our Father. The second coming, when Jesus comes, He takes us home to heaven to be with our Heavenly Father. Family, number one. What else? Food, that's right. If you read the Bible carefully, it talks about when Jesus comes to take us, we go and we sit down to what? The marriage supper of whom? Of the Lamb. That's right. Food. We will go to heaven and we will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thanksgiving. The ultimate Thanksgiving. When Jesus comes. Family. Food. What else? Friends. Anybody get your friends together too? Thanksgiving? Yes, friends. Of course. Your friends will be there. Who is the friend that sticks closer than a brother? Jesus Christ, the ultimate friend. So when I think of Thanksgiving, I think of food, a family, <laughs> food, friends, what else? Fun. Don't they have this Thanksgiving Super Bowl or some? What is that? I, I don't watch it. I don't know. What is it? Is there some major game happening? Football. Okay, yeah. yeah. Football, another F. Right, okay. I prefer the word fun, meaning... Joy, peace, and is that not what heaven is all about? True Christian fun, clean fun, peace, enjoyment, happiness. Not the ephemeral fun that you watch and you sit there and become a couch potato. No, the kind of fun that God wants you to enjoy. And you know what's interesting? The busiest day of the year in airports and on road traffic is what day? Before Thanksgiving. Why? Because everybody wants to travel. And I use the word far away. Fly, you might want to say. People go distances. And when I think of Thanksgiving, people travel all over. People travel miles. They'll sit in airports as long as the... Even if it's one whole day, they want to get with their family. They will go for a distance. Fly far away. And that's heaven as well. As I think of Thanksgiving, it makes me think of the ultimate Thanksgiving. Family, friends forever. My simple question to you comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Paul says, Now is the day of salvation. Now is the hour, folks. Today is the day. And my question to you is, are you going to be able to say, Behold, here is my Lord coming. Are you going to be able to be rejoicing and say redemption draws nigh as Luke 21, 28 puts it? That's my simple question to you today. I want you to pause a moment because I want to pray for you. How many of you want to be ready? You don't want to be misled. So you want to be focused upon not the crisis. Notice, I haven't talked about world events. I want us to focus on Christ. Do you get that? 
Different focus. Don't focus on the newspapers. Focus on the good news of the Word. Okay? Be careful. Don't be misled by false Christs. Focus on the true Christ. How many of you want to focus on Christ and want to be ready when He comes? Let me see the hands right here. Keep them up for me, please. Lord, thank You for Jesus. You see the hands going up. Lord, we don't want to be misled. Help us not to focus upon the crisis. May we focus on the Christ, on Jesus Christ. Keep us ready, Lord. Keep us safe. Lead us not into temptation. Yes, Lord. Deliver us from the false Christs and false prophets. And Lord, we want to be ready, but true, Father, we also want to help others to get ready. So empower us. Motivate us to share this wonderful message of Jesus' imminent return with as many others so that we can all be ready when He comes. In His precious name we pray. Amen.